Hello friends, welcome to the third episode of the Wild User Interviews, a podcast about people, product and crypto produced by the Silicon Craftsman, which is a product and user experience guild at NIR. My name is AVB and today I am with Shreyas. <laughs> Shreyas is a community legend within the NIR ecosystem and I was doing some research before this podcast and I found out he actually brings many years of experience in the community space, open source world, crypto communities. So I'm really interested to dig into a bunch of those areas. Welcome, Shreyas. Thanks, I'll be excited to be here. I'm very excited that you were able to make it. I don't know if many people go through the process of starting a new podcast, but it is often quite intimidating to invite people on as a guest because, you know, podcast one day doesn't exist and the next day it does <laughs> and everyone is so busy in this space so very honored to have you yeah absolutely excited to be here and yeah just chat with you yes that's exactly what we're doing so the focus of the podcast is loosely aligned with product so i guess that really goes down to that core of at its essence everything could be looked at as a product or through product lenses so we're looking at what all the mental models, the processes, the frameworks that we can use to analyze a problem and turn it into a solution, or, or sorry, reframing a problem to make it into an opportunity and a challenge to tackle. But also, even when we identify something that is working, how can we make it into a repeatable process? So things that would be really interested to learn about you are starting with the beginning who you are and how do we get more people like you <laughs> started in the crypto space. It is very novel. It is very foreign. And then we can probably move on to maybe what we're doing with the guilds. And that area is also growing very fast. I'd love to know your role specifically. And maybe we can deconstruct a few things there, looking at both of our experiences because we're technically on the opposite ends. I am technically your customer segment, if you look at it that way. <laughs> So I'll let you get rolling. Who is Shreyas? How do you get started into the tech world? And you know, where does the journey take you? Yeah, absolutely. I've been building communities since the early days of my career, which isn't that long. I don't want to admit how old I am, but that's, that's essentially it. how. As a rule, I have it on the podcast. Don't swear, don't insult people. <laughs> And do not ask people's age and obviously respect how much they want to share privacy broadly, but also age. I don't know why. I, I We're probably around the same age, but <laughs> yeah. I need those boundaries of maturity, what I'm like. Yeah. Do mm. not disclose it. <laughs> yeah. So I've been using internet forums quite uh, a lot that used to be that used to be my life back in the day i was fascinating how people interact with these forums and how there's a sense of like privilege as you rise through the ranks because of the gamification and all of the things that existed back in the day so that was super fascinating to me and i was also doing my engineering my so it's a very common stereotype if it comes to you know india right half the people are engineers and the other half are doctors and so i was the engineering half it's a good and... stereotype and you can't go wrong between engineering and doctors but it's say that it's a great time to be an engineer mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah what happening it's... in the tech space 100 percent. and 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 i guess the, the subsect of that is also like a, a meme within the engineering community, which is a lot of the people in India take up engineering and then 
then figure out what they actually want to do in life. So it's a good four-year period during which you're exposed to new people, new ideas, and things that you weren't exposed to uh, before. So I think that's what got me into the whole idea and culture of open source. I see people, I, I was interested in like doing things outside of the regular university lessons. And, and that really got me thinking, okay, how do we do, how do we do new thing? What, do, what does new thing exactly look like? And that's when I came across this whole open source world, starting with the, the Mozilla project, which, which makes the Firefox browser. Got involved with them about, I don't know. 12 years ago, been doing different things within the community. And that's when I got involved in the concept of community building. They had a student ambassador program. So I started as a student ambassador program, started going to different universities, talking about open source and getting into technology as a non-developer, which was super interesting, I feel, because I, at that point in time, I was doing my computer science engineering. I'm obviously between this amazing people that can code, that can create really interesting projects, build amazing stuff. At the same time, I felt like there has been this historical neglect in a way for non-developers, especially in open source projects, which I'm thinking is changing right now with the importance of like documentation, UX, and just like the importance in the shift of talking to your users before trying to you know, solve a perceived problem. So that's, that's which is really... the core of product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's really been my journey. And, and then throughout, I've been working at the intersection of open source community building and trying to improve technology and just bridge the gap between the two sides. That is a really good overview and I've written some notes because there's a few things I'd like to unpack there before we jump into that, just to get the. I guess the full picture, where are you located now? I'm cheating because I heard the podcast beforehand, but <laughs> <laughs> I do often wonder how people's context, both in terms of role models and the opportunities around you, how they shape where you're going, and then try to place that in a global context. Now that we can get people from anywhere into all these opportunities, how do we increase that exposure to them and create those pathways for them? Yeah, 100%. So I'm based in Bangalore in, in India right now, which is in the southern part of India. And for some context, it's known as the, the Silicon Valley of India. This is where startups come after they get funding to, to hire tech talent and really build and scale their business. Yeah, from a local context, I would say we have we've been very much influenced by the Silicon Valley expats who are returning back to India, trying to scale their business, build their you know, next billion dollar business idea. And so, yeah, that's primarily the reason I moved to, to Bangalore, just because there's so much happening here. But yeah, in the last, I think, four, three, four years, I've been working remotely for companies, global companies. So yeah, that's been my, my journey. I, I would imagine that the Indian expat community returning back home or setting up a local presence and leveraging some of the local talent that's probably where Balaji fits and maybe Naval. There's definitely some very high profile Indian expats that are leading many industries, really, because they're more like thought leaders and their analysis really do span across industries. But I think it's an excellent example of how technology and the globalized world allows for that brain circulation. That was a concept that I came across first in the book Startup Nation. It's a case study about Israel. And it's really interesting because I could really relate with the brain drain end of the equation. I grew up in Venezuela. 
if people can, especially wealthier or more academically inclined, they pursue opportunities overseas. And that's obviously a big loss to the country. The development of the country, putting political and social crisis aside, it's always going to be held back if, as people rise through the education and professional ranks, they keep going overseas. So Israel they've tried to create this brain circulation program where they encourage people to go overseas, gain experience, and then come back, even if it's just for a few years, mm. to relay that experience to the local community and just keep it flowing as long as things are growing it works so i'm really yeah. excited that at least within the tech space that seems to be happening and if it wasn't happening before it's certainly happening after covid <laughs> so there's always something positive that comes out of tough times yeah 100 and i see that sort of being as you rightly mentioned is being accelerated because of covid which is which i feel is both covid in general is a bad thing there's no positive side to it but but i feel like there is also this acceleration in terms of the whole remote work culture now that everyone's just thrown into the deep end and we have seen like extreme cases of that with surveillance tools and people and companies tracking mouse clicks and cameras and all of that so it's an interesting time to observe this shift to the remote world especially with the indian companies that are not accustomed to uh, to that sort of work setting and I love it that you bring the surveillance ransomware because when you th- well, when I think about the shift to the remote world and all these triggers that come out of COVID, I'd say that about half of it is the physical element. You can't be at the office and then you have to implement a technological solution. You download an application and you set up whatever ways to communicate. But the other half really has to do with people's perceptions, both the necessity to be more flexible, proving that it can be done, identifying the challenges of doing it, and even, yeah, just creating new paradigms. A lot of that is people becoming more flexible and moving into state or overseas because of the way that the governments reacted due to the pandemic, or it opens up a new professional market for them where they're much better placed. Like, there's so many things that were forced upon people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that there's definitely a few positive ones and I would focus on those. There's probably some negatives as well. But I do think that when we focus on that ideological bit, and I think that it's been, what, almost two years, somewhere along the line, most people started to question what was happening. Are the people in charge? Do they know what they're doing? There was a lot of questioning of institutions, you know, institutions mm-hmm. broadly. So I think that that kind of sentiment of questioning what exists now really helps the crypto movement because in many ways, crypto is building these parallel systems that empower people to get things done differently or at least to experiment with ideas. Yeah. without first needing a revolution and taking down the government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can go and set up a DAO without having to change the corporation's law in your country. Or you name it, there's so many areas of ex- experimentation now that crypto enables you to create, as they call it now, the metaverse, which I think it's a new frontier. Mars and the metaverse, those are the next frontiers. The, the physical land is taken and we ruined half of it. <laughs> but Mars and metaverse are the future. <laughs> yeah. Definitely seeing the, I guess this is also something that sort of comes up with the conversations that I have uh, with people that are non-crypto native when they start, as you mentioned, which is when you, I think that that level of 
questioning leads to some things. We're yet to discover what those things are, but I guess we're still in the right direction when you feel empowered to question about the the practices and the the norms that the norms that we were following so far. Yeah. I think one of the best ads of all time is the 1984 ad by Apple. I'll mm-hmm. narrate it for people that haven't seen it, but I would strongly encourage everyone to look it up. It's on YouTube. It's this ad which kind of captures the 1984 vibe of people working in a very systematized, structured, rigorous society. Everything is gray. I think they walk into a cafeteria or an auditorium of sorts and everyone's like very monotone. And this one girl, she is, I don't know, somehow she sprints into the auditorium. And for whatever reason, look, I I, I forgot half of it. But (laughs) (laughs) the essence is there is a big screen on the auditorium with a machine, like Big Brother, like looking at people Mm -hmm. and controlling and everything. And she walks in and she throws something heavy at the screen and smashes it. Mm. And then... That's where the famous uh, quote comes from, I believe, for the misfit, for the misfits, the round pegs in the square holes. There was basically a manifesto of Apple calling daring people to think different and really empowering the creative problem solvers and giving people tools to go and act on it. Now, this is 1984. Yeah. It is fascinating to me that if you fast forward, what, 30, 35 years, we know that ethos which Steve Jobs had led to massive success in Apple itself and all the chain of innovation that it unleashed. The iPhone alone has been insane. But it's also a little bit ironic to, with what Apple is now to look <laughs> back and think that they embody that hustler on the street challenging the status quo. So it is interesting. The entrepreneur has always had that non-conformist attitude which is not well received. Uh, I'll tell you what I think the difference is. What is the difference between a hustler as an entrepreneur and a crazy conspiracy theorist or your annoying friend that is complaining all the time? <laughs> the difference between those three groups is that the entrepreneur takes action. They've got high risk tolerance, they like to have experiments, and they're happy to keep pushing forward to prove people that what they believe in can be uh, brought into the world and it can change things. The other two groups are just going to complain and conspire forever. (laughs) So I think this brings us back to product in a really interesting way because those two ideas seem to be at odds. When are you a non-conformist? You're going to challenge everything. The entire world tells you that your idea is terrible, but you're going to do it anyway. When are you that type and when are you prototyping you go and talk to users you get feedback you when an investor tells you no because you take that on board there's definitely a balance between two i personally think it really depends on the stage of the product and there's a time uh, for both you may be very bold and blunt with an idea but when you do get feedback or when you run into a wall stop and reassess but given that you have a lot more experience especially with open source which brings in a special different kind of uh, variables. In open source, you're relying on people to show up (laughs) and contribute. They have to be motivated to keep the project going. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and how you would 
unpack that. That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the key, key factor with with the whole open source world is is obviously this drive which that people have right the, the the reason that they show up is not you know extrinsic motivations like tokens or swags and all of these different things but it, it's really shadowy super coders <laughs> yes yes that's uh, that's something that i feel like everyone should aspire to be a hundred percent i don't even code and i saw <laughs> what's his name uh neil something he released some merch <laughs> Oh. You can buy a shadowy super coder <laughs> hoodie now, and I'm going to buy it because I wear this jumper every day. It's starting, I think it has holes in it now. Um, <laughs> so I need some new merch. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting how people perceive the, especially like people in governments, right? Like people in a position of power when they can't pinpoint individuals that's behind like a revolutionary technology. There's always this inherent skepticism and, and that's that's something that I feel like the trustlessness of the whole decentralized world is really pushing forward to, which is where these two areas collide, because especially in terms of like regulations and, and governance and also being able to control the narrative when people in power can't seem to do that. There's obviously this sense of like agitation that that comes along within these two uh, section. It's all related, and I do apologize that I interrupted you, but I think that we're still loosely within the same uh, topic. I think that what makes open sourcers show up, and once again, this is me as a bystander trying to analyze the phenomena and making sure that they keep showing up, because <laughs> I rely on their technology and the blockchain space is largely open source. It's not the same set of incentives in the traditional world where you may have a contract and a remuneration and you may even get status, but there is something in the experience that is very empowering. You know, as a craft, being able to write code and, and bring your creation to the world, I think it's extremely powerful. Any craft will give you that satisfaction. And if people don't have a hobby, I would strongly encourage people to dabble into anything really, especially if it's like with your hands and you can see you start with nothing and then there's a learning curve. And then at the end of the day, you have something to show and maybe pottery or whatever. And you show it to your friends and it really does look horrible objectively, but it doesn't matter because <laughs> you did it. <laughs> Open sourcers have that crafts component, but the second component is even more interesting because it is a form of power. Like, Developers know that they have the ability to execute code, which can have a huge impact on society. And they know that not many people understand. If we were to have a parallel, this would be like being in the 1800s and you have electricity in your house and other people don't. <laughs> so I think that there is a tension there with government, especially when government, they've got a few things against them. Namely, no one understands technology. So technology is consistently three steps ahead. But also, especially depending on which country you're in, it is certainly the case in Australia, because we have a big government which has adopted a bit of a nanny state role where they try to control everything. Mm. Whenever things go wrong, there is no one to blame but the government. And if technology is the one providing alternatives and enabling you to do things better, the government would have stayed in power regardless because it's the same two parties and they're both equally bad. <laughs> But ones are getting criticized from the outside the system and people are starting to see alternatives. I think that's where they get a little bit nervous. And 
just to clarify, I don't think that the government is really attacking technology in a sinister way. There is a really good book called The Three-Body Problem. Have you heard about it? Do you enjoy reading? Not really. I can't focus a lot on books. So like I listen to like podcasts on like 2x and, and videos on 3x kind of speeds. But oh, nice. uh, you're one of my people. ADHD, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, the, the good news for you is that the movie's coming out or a thing has already been released. But the very brief overview of the storyline, which I love, um, it's science fiction. It's set up in, uh, you know, the Cultural Revolution, China. Mm-hmm. And at some point, this uh, girl at a remote labor camp servicing one of the antennas she receives a message from the universe. And before anyone can see it, she's like, fuck this. She sends a message back out saying, please come to Earth. I'll help you take over. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is fascinating because these things are obviously very advanced. They're on their way to the Earth. And there is a race on Earth to catch up. So... Humans are divided in two camps. The ones that are like super pro-science and they want these aliens to come and take over the people and the ones that are against aliens. And they're actually uh, sabotaging the scientists and destroying progress because I think those are the two camps. Maybe I inverse them, but you can see where those kind of extreme positions of wanting aliens to destroy earth because you're living in very bad conditions or holding back scientific progress because of whatever reason, they definitely seem to fit more within sci-fi. I have no doubt that there are some people that maybe have similar views, but I don't think that government as as an instrument is out there to stop science. Having said that, individual entrepreneurs are always going to be better at executing because they're more nimble, they're more agile, they may be able to get better resources. So I think that, yeah, there's a tension there. Yeah, I mean... I the conversation started, but I was really insightful. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that it's also upon the the regulators and governments and, and all of these policy makers to, to have an open dialogue, which has been a huge challenge, for example, in India, right? Where the initial reaction to everything that they don't understand, which unfortunately encompasses a lot of things, is to just like immediately ban it. And then they're like, okay, now that we've banned it, let's then figure out what we do. And that can take like ages, which is then obviously contributing to this whole brain drain factor, right? Companies going to Singapore or other nations which have like friendly regulations to set up their businesses. India would have this challenge at scale. My experience with Venezuela is a country is, it can be seen in many ways like a ledger, or even if you look at it in in engineering terms, you've got technical debt. Mm -hmm. So the challenge that a lot of developing countries have is that you've got a bunch of technical debt and the government is usually focused. If they're trying to do anything, they're trying to, you know, clear that debt. And then people that are building the future are obviously creating value elsewhere. So you can see where the mismatch is where a backwards-looking government trying to undo all these, you know, historical mess, probably not the most equipped to then go tell people that are actually building new stuff how to do it or what they can and cannot do. So 
there's a bit of tension there. I love it that we can always keep coming back to either product or community. In Australia, it's interesting because government is very receptive to ideas. There are commissions and hearings, and there are several members of parliament who are very pro-technology. What they often tell you is that the tech industry is very small, we're trying to grow it, and they have constituents. And there is a big challenge in the perception of the technology, the opportunity, the threat, and the re-election. So it keeps coming back to their doors are open, but we as a community, and that's you and I, that's our, I guess that's our daily jobs. Mine isn't really a job, our daily, whatever you want to call it. That's where we come in. And I think there's a lot of work and, and this may be a misconstruction of the word community. And that's something that I wanted to ask you. When you look at the role of community managers, I guess that we're looking at the existing community for an ecosystem. You know, it could be a product more specifically or within the parameters of an ecosystem. Yeah. That is different from talking about the community at large, the intersection of politicians with technology and my neighbors who are 60. So I guess that I'd like to ask you, where do you think that the roads meet? We can probably, and I do want to go deeper as we get closer to the near part of the conversation on, on how to grow and manage within those ecosystems. But I guess that first I'd like to get your thoughts on how can we grow the pie? What are the mechanisms to acquire new people to the community? And yeah, I'll let you take over from here. Yeah, I guess my definition of community would be a group of people with a shared sense of purpose or vision. And within that, there is obviously room for, again, if you're building a good, thriving community where people feel comfortable, there can be and there should be differences of opinion. There can be debates, all of these in a more constructive format. And I feel like that shared sense of purpose and vision is like the North Star that people then look back to and reference to and say that, hey, if there is a conflict or if there is a debate, this is what we'd all agree, agreed on together. Is this reflecting our values? Is this, are we going in the right direction by looking at those, that that preamble of your community, right? So that's been my sort of perception of, of building communities or in this case, an ecosystem of different communities. That is an excellent definition. <laughs> a shared set of vision and purpose. That's the... Yeah, shared sense of vision, values, and purpose. Yeah, I love it because I can definitely see it in the very strong community around Nier that has been created. Vision and purpose. I think the strength and the power of a community are when the individual's visions and purpose align very strongly with that of the, the project or, or, or the course. So I think that early stage crypto projects are magical because... There are strong financial incentives. People that get involved early are potentially able to see multipliers, unlike those that, no, similar to the ones that VCs would get when they invest in a leading technology early on. But also because of the nature of open source and community, there is a big role for them to play to make that a reality. Yeah, And it's one of the questions that I love more about this like simple go-to product frameworks of what would have to be true for this to be successful. When you create a hypothesis, when you have a vision, you start to deconstruct what are all the steps. And that's when you realize there is 
no sense of competition or backstabbing. You and I are going for the same role. There can only be one podcaster. That doesn't exist because we realize that there is so much that has to happen. And we're defining so much of that along the way. It's actually the opposite. We create very strong communities to support each other, to make sure that we can grow within our roles and move towards the roles where we want to be because we all start on a Telegram channel (laughs) (laughs) and slowly grow from there. But also I think that, and this is where I think you and I are in similar roles now, just recruiting people for the community. I know that you're looking for a guilds coordinator if anyone is interested. How are the interviews going? Interviews are going pretty well. We've lined up. I think the challenge is primarily the the role or the person that I'm looking for is from the Europe or Asia time zone, just because it's it's very easy to on-ramp them. Unlike for someone, for instance, someone from the US, where there's obviously the, the challenge of time zones and then working closely together can be a little challenging, at least initially. Someone is going to miss out on sleep. <laughs> Yeah, we, we as an organization, we've been trying to get better at less meetings and, and more async work. The, the whole remote world values of like over communicate and have things in a written format, don't take decisions during calls. We're trying to embody all of these things. But I think given the nature of this role that we want them to be onboarded as fast as possible, it's just easier to hire someone from like a similar time zone just so that we can get things going as, as early as we can. I think that is pretty standard. I've, as a hobby, I often browse for job listings and real estate. Two <laughs> 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 things that I'm actually not looking for right now. I'm not actively <laughs> looking for a job and I'm not actively looking for property either. I'm not going to have the, the funds right now. But I do find it interesting. And as the world has gone remote, I, I say I love it in, a, in an ironic way because I'm in Australia. But every job now, especially in tech, is remote. But it's remote within American time zones or European time zones. If you're in Australia, it's still a little bit challenging. And this may be probably an outlier because we really aren't in many time zones. We probably have a better overlap with with some of Asia. But yeah, yeah, definitely there needs to be what I would call common sense. When you want to work with people, you need to define parameters of what is acceptable. You yeah. don't want someone to be online 24 hours. You don't want somebody to be keeping their family or their housemates or their neighbors awake. You don't want people to, you know, start going crazy. Sleep is very important. And if you're not yeah. getting much of it or if you're getting it like me in a polyphasic schedule. Am I making a good case for the near team to pay my relocation to Lisbon? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've been super clear, even with community members, as well as, you know, team members that, that especially in a community facing role, burnout is real. And unless we acknowledge that this is a creative role, right? It's not something that you'd repeat, right? Because humans are different. So there isn't like a cookie cutter solution to all of the problems that people have and adding onto the layer of the global remote world and the nature of our community, which is distributed all around the world. It's it, like the, the narrative of crypto never sleeps. So 100%. getting that together. And I guess that if you haven't thought of this, I can tell you, you also want to minimize the surface for crazy hours because the truth is if this person is going to be dealing with guilds, 
the guilds themselves are all over the world. So you'd want to make sure that their interaction with the core team are within the same time zones. And then there will be the outliers, but yeah, it's about managing time. I'm extremely lucky because what I'm doing now, which is leading the, the Silicon Craftsman Guild product and UX, and I've got a couple of side projects and I'm learning a lot along the way to be able to execute on larger projects. It's extremely flexible because I'm basically my own boss. <laughs> so I like it that depending on how your calendar looks, you can take a nap in the middle of the day or you go till 3 a.m. or I work on weekends. I don't care. I don't have anyone mm-hmm. to complain to and no one is expecting me to do it. So I think that it's interesting to navigate that. Not everyone is the same. For instance, yeah. every time I talk to Claudio in Mexico, he's got a full-time job and he's got a family, you know, wife and kids. And I'm like, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> like the way that he manages time and his flexibility and his availability and it changes for everyone. So I think that's a big part of being accommodating to the best talent. It could yeah. come in any shape or form anywhere in the world. So now I had a couple of notes here that I wanted to ask you from the very beginning of the podcast, but we've gone down so many different tangents. So I'll just really briefly mention before we jump into more of the near specific world, because I am really interested to see what's happening now and, and where we're going and how we can grow together. I want to say we, the thousands of people listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things jumped at me from your initial introduction. And this can be like, like rapid fire questions. The first one is, what was the subject matter of the forums that you were spending a lot of time in back in the day? Oh, I was... If you don't mind the... sharing, if it's some fan fiction or something. Oh, no, absolutely. It's into technology. I was a super fan. So that was the time when Android and Symbian, which is the operating system that Nokia had released, they were both budging at end to end. And I was a super big Symbian fanboy. I'm like, yeah, Android is just a fad. It'll never succeed. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. But yeah, that was the community that I was leading. It shows maturity and insight and integrity to admit when we're wrong. (laughs) I actually admitted during one of the ecosystem hangouts we had today on Twitter. And I'm happy to put this on the record because I think I've grown as a person as well this year. And I'm on a journey to become the best version of myself. I was there when we were having the conversation on the governance forums for Nier around the base currency for Aurora. And I didn't agree initially that it should have been ETH. At the time, I was still in a more tribal mindset, which is not a good place to be. I've, that's one of the examples of something of the Nier community that you become exposed to and it starts to change your worldview. And you really grow with it. You, you adopt it. And I guess that's the reason why we have this podcast, because the things that, if I'm saying it now off the cuff, it's clearly living somewhere in my head. And the special guests that we have, you have a lot of knowledge as well and insights that may seem obvious or may not seem special. But I do believe that there is immense value in saying it out loud and extending it to as many people as possible, because we're all in different places in the journey. So anyway, these if near debate, I was very tribal. I was like, nah, this is better. We're near. We got a paying near. We're proud about this. And 
now I'm happy to admit that I was wrong. Like now I can see very clearly the logic. You create a much better user experience and you're able to extend the functionality of Ethereum. There's just so much alignment that comes from that simple decision. And I guess the caveat there is, and this is something that I'd love to explore with you because you've got the technical background and you're working with community now. The caveat there is that I didn't understand at the time what the technical implications were, or I guess what the technical capabilities were. So now that I understand how the Ethereum at some point goes to the validators and it still pays gas in fees and that fee, that near that gets paid ultimately in L1 still gets burned. After I understood all that, my mind was expanded in a Cambrian explosion kind of way. And I was really happy with the decision. So kudos to the team, especially for taking the heat. It was an interesting uh, conversation that took place in the forum. Yeah, the Symbian version, obviously happy to be proven wrong right now with the with how big the Android ecosystem is and how Nokia has died down and burned to the ground. But but it's an interesting experience, right? Are you still... I still cherish those days where there was this like notional sense of power as you grew through the ranks. You had people that look up to you in those communities. When you're you're in in your IRL world, you're still like a you know a school kid or college kid, right? Nobody gives a shit about you. So I think that's that to me was an interesting time. The reason why I came back to it is because once again, I don't want to date myself, but when I was a kid, and I'm saying like a proper kid, like early high school. <laughs> There wasn't really that much to do online. And I remember when we got broadband and it was like this big deal because in the early days we had one landline and the fight to use the phone and, and connect to the internet <laughs> on the one computer for the whole house. I don't know. I guess I'm older than I look. That's all I'm going to say. And <laughs> I used to spend a lot of time on these like cars forum. <laughs> oh, nice. This is like a 12 year old. <laughs> And I'm lecturing people who actually own vehicles and actually <laughs> drive them. <laughs> and I was savage. Some of my family will tell you that they knew since I was a kid, I was going to become a lawyer and stuff. Jokes on them because I'm not practicing as a lawyer, <laughs> but I was savage. I would tear people down and do my research and this and that. <laughs> and I know what you mean, because where I wanted to go with this story is that Forums are very simple, very pure, very OG way of capturing human behavior in a quantifiable web online. So at the simplest level, what you've pointed at is recognizing people. You build an identity, you build reputation. It, it, it's, it's quantifiable. And I know that there's a lot of tools now. Um, I think James is looking into some of them to quantify people's engagement across different channels. I think one of them is called Orbit. And there's a, a couple more. Is that something that comes across your role? Yeah, so we've been, again, like community is a really interesting thing when you, especially when you're working on it, unlike a product building or development where you, where you complete the code or when you you know put the pieces together as a product manager, you you, you have something to show, which is, this is done at this stage, right? This is complete. Whereas with community, it's always like you you take three steps forward and then you realize something is not working. You go like 10 steps backward. So it's always this whole idea of what does a meaningful community metric look like and how do we get there? So 
If someone's not from a community background, they're just looking at communities, they would probably say, you know what, numbers in community, the size of the community, as well as engagement look interesting. And then we say, but okay, you can have 5,000 members in a Telegram group with zero activity. It doesn't mean anything. They could just be bots. And you could have 5,000 members with so much activity, which could yeah. be just them bitching about how wrong you are and how bad the product is. So engagement and... It happens. Uh, yeah, it, it 100% it happens. So it's about finding the meaningful metrics and staying away from this whole rabbit hole of like vanity metrics that we, that's very easy to track and that we can go into. So the qualitative versus quantitative is always an interesting challenge. I know exactly what you mean because... I don't know if you read my recent post on the governance forum for the June-July progress. So I looked at some of the format that other projects had used. And initially, I disagreed with it because they start with how many Twitter followers and how many subscribers here and so many subscribers there. And I was like, okay, I can play devil's advocate. On the one hand, if your guild has no engagement anywhere, that guild is probably not active. <laughs> Maybe there's something you need to reconsider, or maybe it is time to kill it. But at the same time, I think that the number of followers tells a very small story. And this is something that people need to understand as part of people, because it takes intellectual honesty to recognize that your metrics are bullshit. Yes. The truth is that in most startups, and I've been a founder, I've been an employee, I've been a bystander on the street. You get to define your own metrics. There is no playbook. There is no, you know, whatever credit rating system. You get to define your definition of success and you get to define quarter on quarter what matters to you. And it takes a lot of intellectual honesty to dig through all the mud and all the, the technical debt and all the challenges that you have, both as a, as a team, as a product, as a person, to define what matters. So, for instance, when I think about community, about near and I, I can do both, community for Nier and uh, the guild that we're trying to create now. I think, look, for me, the matters that matter for the community at Nier, and I think that we've been successful, or at least we may have a survivorship bias. I can only see the successful cases. I don't know how many cases we've, we've missed. But to me, what matters right now is, can we have a community where anyone can join? And as we mentioned earlier, they're able to grow into a more meaningful role. You know, you and I know that there are more opportunities that we can get people for. Every project that NIR is hiring, even the NIR Foundation, NIR Inc. is splitting off into new companies. There's an opportunity for everyone. Any role that you can think of, community, developers, product, everything. So that to me is probably what matters the most. We're able to attract people, engage them, they feel welcomed, and they grow with the ecosystem. With the guild is something very similar. It's probably more a behind the scenes interaction now. Are we able to engage with projects in a way where the product has a meaningful <laughs> improvement for users? Can we grow the pot? How many active users are there in the ecosystem? How is their experience as a whole? That takes different forms for us and we keep tweaking with those uh, metrics. Some of the content like this podcast is a one to many. So we just want to get product thinking out there and have conversations that you and I are having, and I think we're getting some amazing insights. How can we get as many people as possible 
to get the same insight. Some other things are more one-to-one, having design sprint workshops or mm-hmm. having UX reviews. Yeah. There's a bunch of user testing that we're doing now to capture specific feedback in time. Mm-hmm. So it's very malleable. And I like that within your community role, you are aware that vanity metrics can be a problem because they are easy to nail, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, Often if people choose vanity metrics, they may be hiding some other challenges that just need to be addressed. No startup is ever smooth sailing. Even the most successful companies throughout have insane stories that eventually make best-selling books. (laughs) (laughs) And even today, some people will tell you that $350,000 a year salary is not enough to stay there. So it's it's an ongoing issue. Just Bay Area challenges. (laughs) Yeah. Now I've got a genuine question because some of the questions I already know the answer but I just love hearing it from you and and add more perspective because I did my research for this podcast but this one I don't know and I'd love to get a better understanding you've got an engineering and computer science background I'm guessing that means that you've got some coding proficiency even if you know the languages what is the difference between a dev rel and community I guess, what are the similarities and the differences? And I guess, why are both important? Uh, Why you prefer community more broadly? Yeah, I guess the lines between DevRel and community roles, again, this is very, it depends on the kind of organizations that you're, you know, joining and and the role that you're in. And just to clarify, DevRel, we mean developer relations within Near. Yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah. So DevRel, in the whole DevRel realm, there's developer advocacy, developer relations, developer evangelist, all of these changes, depending on the organization that you're in. I stuck with communities at the intersection of developers, just because I realized early on that I didn't enjoy coding as much. But at the same time, I, since I come from the background, I'm able to relate with some, especially with developers in terms of the challenges that they face, which, which I believe might not be the case with someone from, let's say, a marketing background or a PR background. That's something that I found to, at least in my sort of profession, professional journey to be working. At the New Foundation, though, we have the DevRel team that focuses specifically on more on the up until now, they've been primarily doing a lot of the business side of things. So mostly getting companies on board, partners on board. And now of late, we're we're now focusing on like actual developer engagement, which is through the educational programs, through through one-on-one interactions, and really getting individual developers up to speed. Quick shout out, we also have a DevRel opening on the community team. So if, if someone that's watching this is interested in exploring that, feel free to go ahead and apply and, and you'll get to work with the community team, support hackathons, support individual dev sprints and all of those fun things. That's awesome. That is a fantastic segue to, I'm going to pretend it was a question. <laughs> no, we're basically going with the flow. Um, I know there was a bit of an alpha leak that we've got a few more hackathons lined up, uh, global hackathons for the rest of the year. So I don't know if this would be a good time mm, to promote them, but also, I guess, go a little bit into the theory and the value of a hackathon. What makes for a good hackathon? And especially with me and other people that may be listening to this podcast, which are active community members, how can we prepare before a hackathon to make sure that people get the most value? And how do we follow up after a hackathon? And I'm guessing that there's 
probably some principles and insights and lessons that you've gathered from doing so many of these hackathons over time? Yeah. Yeah. One of the first things that I've done after joining Near was put together the Rainbow Hack. And I think one of the key factors that that hopefully was also beneficial for the team to pick on from there for the create-based hackathon and the upcoming hackathons was creating these playbooks. And and just to add some context, I've been running offline hackathons and online hackathons. I've, I've worked at CoinList in the past. We did hackathons with Dapper Labs, Graph, IDEO, any big sort of name that you call out in this space that we've done. We've probably done a hackathon or developer engagement activity with them. And so we're doing the same thing right now. In the spirit of open source, what we're really trying to do with activating the communities, give them playbooks, toolkits on, you know, here's how you run a hackathon in a box thing. You're a five-year-old, you have no idea. Theoretically, you're much older. You wouldn't want to employ Hackathon in a box? Yeah. That has to be the best value proposition I have heard in a long time. Yeah, we're literally trying to like document every single thing. So right now, if you go to the forum, uh, there's a post by Rebecca about the hack nodes. Uh, so if you are listening to this podcast, it's safe in your city to to gather around in person and put together an offline event. Do, do check the post out because we are supporting them. We'd love to get people gathered offline where it's safe too. But at the same time, this is also a global hackathon. So it's not just... You're not, if you're super competitive, you are not just competing with people in your city, but also with different hack nodes around the world, as well as people who are sitting in their own homes and hacking along as well. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you and the entire team working on hackathons. You can definitely see the impact of it. A few years ago, 2018, I went to an Ethereum hackathon up in Sydney. And it's interesting because even back then, I wasn't a coder, but it was mostly technical hackathons. I guess that I knew I was going to be a product person and a professional uh, talk shitter <laughs> because my role for the hackathon was going from table to table and group to group and basically just get them to explain to me what they were doing. And within my beginner mindset and my humility, I was just asking them questions and they were like, well, actually... We never thought about that. Like, why are you asking that question? And I would just explain to them how I would approach it as a user, which is what I would care about. Because to me, the judgment criteria, I wasn't judging and I have no idea what criteria the judges used, but to me, the judging criteria was, is this something that people are going to use? Is this something that people are going to care about after the hackathon is over because it solves a real problem? So I really love the experience and I'm still very close to several of the people that I met in the hackathon, including some that have since relocated overseas, some that are still in Sydney. It's it's really nice how you, you can get to know people really well, self-selection bias, when you get people in the same experience that have an interest in common and you can learn together. I think that's extremely powerful. But coincidentally, today we had an ecosystem hangout uh, on Twitter And we had someone join, I think I can say his name, Jameson. He is one of the developers for Flux. I was really interested to learn people's journey into the ecosystem and especially as a developer, the tooling, the languages and whatnot. And he mentioned that he got, he found out about Nier through Gitcoin and he got started with a Rainbow Hackathon last year. Oh, wow. (laughs) So... Yeah, kudos to you and the entire team. I'm really excited to hear that we're creating those uh, playbooks to make sure that we can replicate this experience. More hackathons, not as a sheer number of events we can have in the calendar, so we can all claim we hit the KPIs and we all get paid, 
but more what is out. How many projects during the hackathon are we excited about? How many people stay within the community and move on the roles? With the with the hack nodes, I hadn't heard of them. There's so much happening in the ecosystem, but I am 100% going to go check them out because a couple of weeks ago, I also raised that. I said that my thesis for the next 18 months, assuming we don't get another you know black swan event, is that we're going to enter a hyper-social stage. We've been isolated for a long time. And things have felt stagnant or you know deteriorating. So I think that as the world opens back up, we're going to enter a hyper-social stage where there's going to be immense value in seeing people in person and just spending time yeah. together and sharing and feeling part of a community again. Honestly, I am incredibly grateful of the crypto community because I think it would have gone crazy without it during so many months of lockdown and stuff. It was great to be able to join everyone online and be part of a group. But I also think that it would be a big mistake not to focus on local communities. So I think that these hack notes, I'm going to go check them out. I'll contribute as much as possible. And then I'm going to blast them out because I think that there is so much potential. And it'd be interesting to see what has already been covered in the playbook. But I think that there can be a very powerful combination between approaching, say, universities or university clubs and if there is some sort of a partnership or sponsorship from the Near Foundation, which I'm confident that the community DAO, for instance, could cover, it can be relatively easy to host these events, get students engaged, and yeah, once again, hopefully expand the, the talent pool that way. Yeah, 100%. We, we're targeting in all of the different directions, but ultimately we are, again, all of these are like very super high level, like best practices, right? Hey, here's what you do. Uh, here's what you don't do, or here's what you should probably do differently. But ultimately relying on the local community and their background and their experience in terms of really making it very culturally relevant and local at the same time, because there, there can't be like a high level direction that you give and then everyone follows that because that's not going to work. So ultimately, these are just like pointers that, hey, here's what we think might be useful from a participant perspective, from a host perspective, from a space perspective. Here's what you need, internet and Wi-Fi and food and drinks and all of these things. So that it's easy for someone who's just like very new to this, but interested to just check things off a list and saying that, yes, this I've done this, I've done this, I can do this. So My experience, and once again, wild user interviews, we have a sample size of one. <laughs> <laughs> but we can deconstruct as much as possible from the person and then just assume that there are more like them out there. And then there's people that are different as well. My experience is I'm extremely good at networking, at connecting with people, at getting things started. I am less good at putting things in writing and like structuring things. So what may be a very simple document, which if you chain me to a chair, I would do and lay out a... Uh, an itinerary for an event, if you can make it really simple, you know, most likely when I read it, I'd be like, this all makes sense. There's nothing here that I didn't know, but just the fact that it's ready to go, it saves me a lot of time and it gives me a lot of confidence to reach out to universities yeah. because I've overcommitted myself in the past and I don't want to get myself into new situations where I don't feel like I'll be able to execute, especially because now you're holding the Brands University and Nears University. <laughs> And you're in the middle, ready to be destroyed. So I think that 
these things that we take for granted, maybe because you've done them a lot of times or because they're not you know, super challenging, Te- technically anyone could do them, there's still immense value in just making it simpler for people, you know, for anyone um, to take on board. Yeah, and that's 100% the idea. Amazing. So with the three global hackathons coming up, is there any information that you're ready to share publicly? Anything that we should be looking out for, getting excited about, preparing? Yeah, so we've just uh, announced the dates for the first one. I guess it's the end of August and the beginning of September. So that 10 days between August and September. So that's super exciting. There is a theme as well. I don't know if it's been announced yet, but that's another thing that you should all definitely look forward to in terms of what is the hackathon about. Let's play good cop, bad cop. I'll say what I heard. Because I think it has been announced. I read somewhere. It's going to be NFT, green NFTs. There's also this... Yeah, that's, I guess, one one element of it. But I guess the... the, We can always edit this one out if we get in trouble. Most likely, (laughs) this won't be released till then anyway. So we're safe. Yeah, okay. So so I'm guessing it's very meta-focused in the real sense of meta. And and whatever that comes to your mind when you hear that. And if you get excited by that, you should definitely check out the hackathon. Can you see my face? <laughs> Meta gets me going. Meta is where it's at nowadays. Yeah, lots of things coming up in the pipeline. We we also, with the local nodes and hack nodes initiative, we're really excited to see, again, as you rightly mentioned, people are craving that connection. And you look at travel websites nowadays, like air, airplanes and you know travel restrictions have been lifted off and people are like, booking tickets left right and center i think that's going to be the case with in-person community events as well which is people are getting to together to create these meaningful connections which which hopefully merge out of these events that we do so um definitely looking forward to creating all of these different hack nodes around the world and then the possibility of connecting them so that within the 10 days there is a there's a flowing hackathon from Australia to, to India to, to Vietnam to US and, and all of these different places. I think that it, it, it ties in quite nicely with the decentralization theme that we were talking about before, because I think that over the last few months, we've probably lived like the golden era of having one global community because the community was still small and we're all online. But I think that going forward, as the community continues to grow, we will start to get those local groups of developers and local support groups. And from my experience, in those local communities and hackathons and events, that's where a lot of the networking happens and they create teams and they start projects. Yeah. You know, Some of the successful projects here in Melbourne that are still going, they met during the 2017, 2018 days. There was a blockchain co-working space here in the city and they basically had an open door policy. We had events every day of the week. Wednesdays was, I think it was Bitcoin Wednesdays or whatever it's called, uh, talk and trade. People would just show up and learn and drink a lot. <laughs> so I think that there's, there's a lot of value in that. I would support that. Australia, unfortunately, borders are closed. Indefinitely been closed since March last year, and there is no talk about opening them. But when they do, we'll join that trend of booking flights literally anywhere. (laughs) Just get me on the next one. Definitely going to go to the hack nodes and the city nodes. So I was talking to the folks in Ukraine, Valentin from Transform NFT yesterday. We were talking about how 
they've built this micro ecosystem of like people that accept near and local businesses. So there's a donor and kebab shop that you can go pay near. There's a cosmetic store. They're talking to taxis in the city to accept near and so much amazing stuff that that I was just learning about yesterday. I'm like, where have you all been? Like we we've not even like known about all of these so that we can support you. So that's definitely uh, something that we are. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, which is the real world adoption of these technologies. I think Lisbon has been. Uh very strategically uh, chosen because there's a cluster of near projects and people there already yeah. but also the weather is pretty good throughout the year and it is a very um, inexpensive city however i was thinking and i'm i need to post this on the uh, silicon craftsman community hub but I'll, I'll run past you now that we're on the line i was thinking of creating examples of reframing a problem into an opportunity or a challenge. So when you present people a challenge, it's much more likely that you can deal with it in ways that yield a positive outcome. So the the problem or, or the setup was I had the opportunity to go from Berlin to St. Petersburg, all through the east of Europe back in 2018. And when I was in the Baltic states, I think it would have been Latvia or Estonia. I was a walking tour through the city center, beautiful, like uh, unbelievable. The, the historical city center is something else. But they were saying that they have a big problem because all of the tourism is in the summer months, which is three months. The rest of the year mm. is very cold. <laughs> they don't get any <laughs> tourism. So I'm thinking, okay, how could we reframe that local problem and maybe try to tap into some of the trends and create some opportunities, especially because we have a lot of community members now in Russia and Ukraine yeah. and that, those parts, parts of the world. So I think we could have an execution arm. There's some networks there to, to get things going. So I was thinking, well, tech people are becoming a little bit of a meme, actually, <laughs> for, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone and biohacking and always finding ways mm. to improve as a person. You're always on a journey to become the better version of yourself. So I thought I grew up in the tropics. I live in Australia. We're in winter now, but it's not the coldest. Would I spend a winter in Russia or in Ukraine to step out of my comfort zone and to leave something different? And I was like, in the right context, I would probably 100% do it. Like, I've never lived a hardcore winter, so I don't even know what clothes to wear. I don't know anything about layering. I don't know. But, but if, if we're able to identify what is putting people off or what are the challenges, and then you create like the extra layer of making it really cool and exciting. Like, can you imagine just renting like a hacker house and people descend there for winter and you're able to live a really unique winter experience while at the same time getting some work done and meaningful connections i think this could be a great idea like yeah yeah 100%. i'm going to present it and hand it over to the ukrainian team and see what they think but yeah we've been looking at the creators cabin i believe was the initiative that one of these folks were running and and that was super interesting like we we're literally here to support creator creators and creatives. And so we were just talking about how we should have been like doing something similar to that, or maybe even like supporting what they're already doing. So yeah, definitely on board with the idea of getting people together, getting interesting people together to do, you know, very interesting things. The digital nomad space is growing quite a lot. So if we're talking about the same project, uh, Creator Cabins is in Austin or, or somewhere in California. 
sorry, okay. in Texas. And they're tiny houses and they've got, I guess it's like seasonal or like periods of time. And it's pricey, but they also have scholarships or an equivalent. But there's a few of those. There's one called Casa, which means house in Spanish. Same, they're sort of like setting up these houses around shared interests. And one of them mm. is crypto and I think take more broadly. Oh, nice. The other one is called, I think it's Launch House. They had some great promo material and they rented Paris Hilton's house in LA. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the one. Ross, have you met Ross from the team? Yeah. Yeah, I think Ross was from, I think Eric met Ross at that place. I don't know, I, Eric, I think he was visiting, he was doing this U US tour and I think that was part of the tour and, and that's where he met Ross and that's how Ross came on board uh, to, to Nier. Wow, that is an amazing story. See, that just keeps validating that I have to get in a plane and go. Yeah, I, I do dream of buying some land near Byron Bay, north New South Wales, a fair bit north of New South Wales. And yeah, just setting up a bunch of tiny houses and running a bit of a hacker's retreat it would be amazing. But at the same time, Australia is a little bit far. So I think it could go either way. People would really value spending some time down here and having yeah. that cluster of innovation. But at the same time, I think that it'd probably be easier to do it in like Costa Rica. <laughs> you want our flight to any uh, capital city in the US, Miami or Dallas or LA. So it's a work in progress, my friend. Yeah, exciting times, exciting stuff happening across the ecosystem. And, and yeah, happy to support however we can. Indeed, indeed. This is a probably a good place to end it. We've been going for an hour and 12 minutes, although I may edit a couple of things out, including the, uh, the alpha leak for the hackathon. Uh, <laughs> if you, if you think we should take that out. Thanks so much for your time. I am looking forward to continuing the conversation online and offline and probably not recording. And yeah, any way that we can help, let us know. We should have probably said this at the beginning, but... <laughs> the the guild structure at near it's a fascinating experiment now of uh, uh, scaling in a decentralized way so rather than micromanaging people at the community level the foundation because it's just becoming hard to interact with so many people and especially when it comes to funding yeah. the guilds model comes in as a way for anyone in the community to propose a structure around an interest or whatever it may be and for them to manage that as a, as a smaller independent unit but there's a very strong and close relationship between the foundation and the guilds around providing financial support if that's what's needed access to people it is very case-by-case -case basis so i'm running a guild a very new guild we're still getting um, everything set up but things are going great so far and Treyas is on the community side of Nier. So we'll definitely be working closely together. And if there's anything that from the foundation you guys need from the guilds as, a, as an extended support network, by all means, let us know. Because I think that, yeah, there's a lot of potential there of reaching uh, the target audience or the users from like different angles.
Yeah, sounds sounds great. Yeah, absolutely great. Uh, enjoyed enjoyed happy you know enjoyed being on this conversation and, and chatting with you, uh, Avi. So it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Oh, that's the calendar going off. Next meeting. <laughs> Enjoy your day. Yeah. Thanks, Avi. Cheers. See ya.